Well, good morning. My name is Malcolm Kite, and uh, I lead the site here. So I'm the pastor for this site, and uh, we have three different sites and six different meetings on Sunday. So there's lots of baptisms going on across the church. Uh, great to uh, have Cherry see Cherry get baptised earlier. Uh, we've really enjoyed getting to know Cherry and Mark over the last year or so, um, and uh, I think they first came. Uh, to this church when Dawn got baptised, so now she's getting baptised. So it's uh, a great time to celebrate, and uh, we're very thrilled that, Cherry, you've uh, shared your story and uh, enabled us to share with you today. Well, John Lennon obviously thought that the Beatles were something very special. In March 1966, when he was interviewed by Maureen Clee for the London Evening Standard, he said... We're more popular than Jesus. Uh, now, I would suggest that if you come back in 2,000 years' time, we were sort of, you know, thinking about what's happened in the previous 2,000 years, I suspect very few people would have heard of the Beatles at that point, uh, yet alone John Lennon. But I'm pretty sure that people will still know the name Jesus. He was an extraordinary man when he was on the earth. He was public, he had his public ministry for just three years. He was in, living in this obscure country in the Middle East, 2,000 years ago, and his name is still known today. How is it that a man who made no records, wrote no books, starred in no films, didn't have a TV show, didn't have a promotional organisation to manage his uh, publicity, how is it that this man has managed to continue to influence generation after generation? How is it that a man that was executed as a common criminal has continued to change people's lives so that now nearly a third of the world's population would own the name of Jesus and follow him? Is it possible that Jesus was something very special, far more special than the Beatles or John Lennon? Is it possible that Jesus was actually who he claimed to be? I was reading a survey this last week, uh, which was done in the UK last year, and in the survey it said that about 40% of people in the UK don't believe that Jesus was an actual historical figure. Uh, they don't believe he actually existed, it's just a myth. And I think partly people want to say, well, we can't believe what the Bible says because that's all written by people who are believers. They want to dismiss all that evidence. And yet there is so much evidence for the existence of Jesus Christ that it has been said that there's more evidence for him than for the existence of Julius Caesar. And I've never come across anybody that's doubted the existence of Julius Caesar. However, if you want to dismiss all the Christian writings, there are still historical sources which affirm that Jesus actually existed. One Roman historian who's very well known, very credible historian, was a man called Tacitus. And he lived in Rome, he was living in Rome in AD 64 when Emperor Nero set light to part of Rome and then blamed the Christians. And Tacitus writes about that fire and he talks about the Christians. And he says in his writings, the founder of this name, Christ, 
had been executed in the reign of Tiberius by the procurator Pontius Pilate. And so about 30 years after Jesus' death, uh, we have a man who is not uh, a Christian at all, actually hated the Christians, Tacitus, writing and affirming that uh, this uh, man was executed under the orders of Pontius Pilate. There is also a Jewish priest and a historian called Josephus, who was writing around the same time. And he mentions Jesus twice in his books, once very briefly, but also here uh, in a longer quote. And this is what Josephus wrote, and this is translated from the original language, and the, the, the language is a little bit uh, ancient, but this is what he wrote. Around this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who did surprising deeds, and a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused uh, by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who in the first place came to love him and did not give up their affection for him for on the third day he appeared to them restored to life. The prophets of God had prophesied this and countless other marvellous things about him. And the tribe of Christians, so called after him, have still to this day not died out. Now those are the words of a Jewish priest, a man who was not a Christian, didn't like the Christian sort of religion or sect that was emerging affirming again that Jesus was killed under the rule of Pontius Pilate, that he also rose again from the dead, and that all the prophets in the Old Testament had pointed towards those events happening. There is no doubt that Jesus is a historical person. No serious historian would doubt that. And yet many people do, in our nation, doubt that he had ever existed but there is no doubt that he was a man who was walked on the earth and he died on a cross and according to the Bible he rose again three days later. When we have baptisms we like to encourage people to tell their story and today Cherry told her story in the form of a poem which is a bit unusual but that's not usually how we do it but then people tell their story because essentially Jesus Christ, this Jesus, this historical Jesus uh, has changed their life. There's something about an encounter with him which has changed their life. And one of the earliest Christian believers was a man called Saul, who became known as Paul, the Apostle. And uh, he was a very devout Jew. He was uh, so incensed that this new Christian faith was taking hold that he decided to sort of root out all the Christians and persecute them. And so he went around Jerusalem uh, arresting uh, these new Christian believers, putting them into prison, and uh, uh, carried out a sort of systematic uh, persecution against them. And then he heard there were Christians up in Damascus, in Syria, so he went on his way up to Damascus, and on the way there he had this dramatic experience where he's on his horse, he sees this incredibly bright light, and Jesus starts to speak to him in this vision. He falls off his horse, uh, as a result of the encounter, he is blind for three days. And he tells his story in the book of Acts, in chapter 22. And this is what he says, this is his story, his, his testimony. 
As I arrived on the outskirts of Damascus about noon, a blinding light blazed down the skies, and I fell to the ground, dazed. I heard a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you out to get me? Who are you, Master? I asked. He said, I am Jesus the Nazarene, the one you're hunting down. My companions saw the light, but they didn't hear the conversation. Then I said, what do I do now, Master? He said, get to your feet and enter Damascus. There you'll be told everything that's been set out for you to do. And so we entered Damascus, but nothing like the entrance I had planned. I was blind as a bat, my companions had to lead me by the hand. And that's when I met Ananias, a man with a sterling reputation in observing our laws. The Jewish community in Damascus was unanimous on that score. He came and put his arm on my shoulder. Look up, he said. I looked and found myself looking right into his eyes. I could see again. Then he said, the God of our ancestors has handpicked you to be briefed on this plan of action. You've actually seen the righteous innocent. You've seen Jesus and you've heard him speak. You are to be a key witness to everyone you meet of what you've seen and heard. So what are you waiting for? Get up, get baptised, scrub clean of those sins and personally acquainted with God. Well that was Paul's story. If he'd been getting baptised today he would have talked uh, and told us the story very much like that. We still talk about the Damascus Road experience, don't we? Where people's lives are transformed, turned around in some way often in connection with coming to faith in Christ, but sometimes we use it in other senses as well, but it's a dramatic change. And I suppose I would want to ask everybody here in this room today, all of us, have you had some kind of Damascus Road experience for yourself? Uh, We're all on this journey through life, uh, and at some point many of us have encountered the risen Christ. We have come across Jesus through the Bible, we've, we've understood something about who he is, and it's changed our lives. Uh, it's not as dramatic necessarily as Paul's experience, and we didn't get blind and that sort of thing, but uh, we have come, in, in our journey through our life, we have come to a point where we've realised that Jesus is very special, that he is God, and that we need to follow him. And so my question to all of us today is, you know, have we done that? Have we experienced Christ on the road through life. And Paul asks two very important questions, two big questions. The first question is, who are you? The second question, what do I do now? Well, who are you? Who is Jesus? Well, we've already said, I've already tried to establish that Jesus was a real person, a historical person. So if he's a historical person, who actually is he? The survey I mentioned earlier also found that about 30% of people in the UK believe that Jesus was a spiritual leader or a prophet, but they wouldn't necessarily say that he was God. Well, he clearly was a spiritual leader. He clearly had got the ability to, to speak prophetically. But the trouble with stopping there is it doesn't take into account the fact that he rose from the dead. And there are no other spiritual leaders or faith leaders, or prophets, anywhere in the world, in any faith, that could claim, or have claimed, that they've risen from the dead. Which makes Jesus somewhat more special. So what are the options? 
Was he a con man? Was he a madman? Or was he actually God? Well, was he a con man? Was he somebody that was tricking the people of his day? Was he just a very clever illusionist? Was he a kind of original version of these people? Paul Daniels, Darren Brown, Harry Houdini, David Copperfield, you know, an illusionist who could make people believe things were happening which really weren't happening. Did he have 12 glamorous assistants to help him in his show? How did he change water into wine. All those gallons of water, changing them into wine, that would be a fantastic trick, wouldn't it, to do today. If you could do that, you could make millions of pounds. You wouldn't have to go to Calais all the time to buy your cheap wine. You could just produce it and sell it and make lots of money. How did he do that? Was he a con man? How did he walk on the water? How did he raise Lazarus from the dead? The, the man had been dead for four days. How did he do that trick? Was he a con man? Was he an illusionist? There were dozens of other recorded miracles as well in the New Testament. Were people just gullible? Did, were people in those days just uh, not able to kind of do the scientific experiments to test all this out? Were they just gullible? Were they taken in more easily? Of course, we're much more sophisticated now. We don't believe in God any longer. We read our horoscopes in the papers. We watch daytime TV. We're much more sophisticated now than we ever were in those days, of course. Uh, we've got science, and lots of people want to say, well, science answers all the questions. But it doesn't, does it? It doesn't at all. You can't, science, a scientist cannot answer how uh, you feel so much love for your child, or, or what the, the experience of falling in love is all about, or what you feel when you see a piece of artwork, or you hear a piece of music, and how that moves you and changes you internally. Science cannot measure those things. There are things that science doesn't touch. The biggest trick of all, of course, was faking your own resurrection. Jesus dies on a cross in a very, very public way. And then three days later, he rises from the dead. Now, how did he do it? Maybe the disciples stole the body. There's all sorts of theories about how, you know, how Jesus' body was removed from the tomb. Maybe they stole it. Maybe they decided, we'll create this myth, this legend, that Jesus rose from the dead. But of course they perpetuated that myth, if it was a lie, uh, they perpetuated it to the point that they also were killed for their faith. They were executed, most of those original disciples. I cannot believe that those people would have gone to an early death because of a lie, because they were making something up. You know, I, I, Debbie McGee was Paul Daniel's great assistant. I can't imagine her being willing to go to prison claiming that one trick that he did was genuinely a, a, a miracle. You know, she, she wouldn't have gone to that level. These disciples were not going to give their lives away cheaply uh, for a con. <clears throat> was he a con man? Maybe. But if he wasn't a con man, was he a madman? Perhaps this Jesus was a genius who just bordered on the insane. He did say some outrageous things. He did say things like, before Abraham was born, I am. And he said, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Now if somebody stands up today and makes those sorts of claims, you just think this person's a, a mad person. And yet, over the centuries, so many people have put their faith in these words and seen their own lives changed. 
they would say he's not a madman at all. That this is this this stuff's real. And we've largely built our laws in this country on his teaching. If he's a madman, he's an incredibly clever madman who has delivered some extraordinary teaching of the highest authority and the highest quality. We've, we've built our, our society largely on the things he says. Uh, his influence continues uh, through to our day. We even date our calendar according to where his life started. So can we really believe that Jesus was a madman? But if he isn't a madman, then the only other real possibility is that he is God. And it's a reasonable option to think that Jesus was actually who he claimed to be. And if he is God, then it's easy to understand he can do miracles. That's, that's perfectly reasonable. If he's God, it's, it's perfectly reasonable to feel that he can deliver teaching which is authoritative. That he will influence many generations. If he is God, then he can die on a cross and rise again three days later. 2,000 years of history and the stories of billions of Christians point for them to this one conclusion that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. That he is God. And so Paul's question, who are you, is answered by Jesus. He is God. And then once you've accepted that that is the truth, you have to ask the second question. You can't just say, okay, Jesus is God, we'll put that piece of information on a shelf over here and I'll carry on living my life the way I've always lived it. This is a different kind of piece of information from saying, uh, you know, Brighton is a nice city. <laughs> it's a totally different level. If Jesus is God, then we have a responsibility to examine what he says and to understand how we should live our lives in the light of that piece of information. And so Paul asks perfectly reasonably, what do I do now? If you're God, then this has to have an impact on my life. You can't just do nothing about it once you've accepted that. And so Paul has to check out, what do I need to do? And so Ananias is, is brought to Paul, uh, and he says that you know, God's going to use you uh, for this and that and the other in the future, but right now you need to get baptised. You need to turn away from the way you've been living, and you need to get baptised. And he says to him, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptised. Now, there are people who are believers who have accepted the first truth that Jesus is God. They, they, they believe that. But they haven't yet, for some reason, got baptised. And I suppose my challenge to you would be exactly what Ananias is saying. What are you waiting for? Get up and be baptised. Because Paul had been a believer for three days at that point. So you don't have to be a believer for years before you get baptised. Paul had got a terrible past. He'd been persecuting Christians, throwing them into prison, approving of their deaths. Uh, and now he's turned around. He's decided to go a different way. And so you don't have to be perfect before you get baptised either. He's on a journey. And so he's repented, he's turned around, and he's decided, okay, I'm going to get baptised, I'm going to follow this. So I would want to say, if you're in that position, you, you do believe in Christ, you know you've had some sort of Damascus Road experience like him, you, you've encountered something of the risen Christ, you understand that he's changed your life, 
then your next step must be to get baptised. And I just want to encourage you to go to the welcome desk afterwards and say, next baptism, I'd like to know more about what that means and can I put my name down. So I'd encourage you to do that. But I think every one of us needs to ask these two big questions. Who are you and what do I do now? And uh, we all owe it to ourselves, I think, to ask those questions seriously and investigate who is Jesus. And one of the best ways of doing that is to go on an Alpha course. The Alpha course is an introduction to Christianity. It runs for uh, several weeks on, uh, in our case, a Thursday evening over at the Catford site. There are leaflets about it in the foyer, uh, so you pick up one of those. And it just introduces us to who Jesus is, why he died, and then goes on to talk about the Bible and prayer and all sorts of uh, basic things uh, that we need to understand in order to get going in our Christian lives. 